This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. The title of the book, Quicksand, a Family Foundation, book one. And the author is Victoria Thomas, and Victoria joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Victoria. Hi, good afternoon. Great to have you with us. Very intriguing book one, part of a trilogy. We'll talk more about book two, book three later in this interview. But this first book, as you put it, the story of your paternal side of your family. And this this book really focuses on your great-grandparents. But I also love the prologue, which is focused on you at Ellis Island, which we'll discuss yeah. as well. But as you put it, this book is a twisted saga of lives intertwined with the unexpected continually directing their fate, and many can relate because unexpected events occur in all our lives, but these main characters, we're, we're, are the main characters the women? The main characters are, are the women, but, and everything is, on again, like you said, on the paternal side. The main characters, I would say, the heroines or the protagonists are the women. The men are, of course, an integral part of it and how their lives affect the women. But it's the theme of all three novels, historical novels, is that insecurity within the women in their personal lives, yet each of the women whether it's my great-grandmother in Quicksand, my grandmother Lillian, which is in book two, or my mother in book three, or myself. We're all extremely successful, as well as my sisters, in our business lives. But with personal relationships, there's a deep insecurity. And so it's like um, a paradoxical situation. Before we get into those details. Tell us a little bit about your background and how this book came about. Oh, I'd be glad to. The prologue, Coming to America, talks about how my family ended up in America. And it wasn't to chase the American dream. It was that my sister uh, had to have an operation. And that operation nowadays would be probably pretty simplistic but at the time it was uh, innovative and nothing had been done in Wales in the United Kingdom to correct her situation which was one leg was longer than the other. My aunt and uncle, my father's sister and her husband had come to America and my uncle found a doctor that wanted to do this operation on my sister. It was only the second one. First one that he'd done was un- unsuccessful on another girl but my sister her the growth plate in her which we'll call the the good leg had not it wasn't final it it was still she was still growing and so they the operation was extensive where they put pins in the uh, kneecap of that leg then as she grew 
the other leg caught up and when they were even the pins were released which sounds again very simplistic but at that time this doctor in England he was published over it it became an operation that helped many many children and that's how we came to the United States and we came through Ellis Island like all the immigrants did which was very poignant for me as a child um, and for my father and for my for my little family there were five of us you remember even till today uh, tears streaming down your father's face when he got there there's the statue of liberty what do you make of that today what what was going on in his mind and in his heart i think in my father in his mind he had fought in world war ii uh, he was a lieutenant colonel in the british army I think when we were coming in, he was leaving everything he knew behind, his success in the Army, his family that's in Wales and England. And I think the tears were tear, mixed tears, tears of joy for my sister, tears of sadness and regret leaving his homeland. And I think all of those things mixed together. And it was a drizzly, dreary day in December. And it was cold. And we were standing out on the deck as we came in. And there were all the tugboats were everywhere. And, you know, it was pretty daunting. And I think that it was just mixed emotions for my dad. This book one begins with the family in the early 1800s, uh, your great-grandparents. Yes. And as you put it, stretches across France, England, Wales, and eventually America. And then you talk about deceit, lies, secret, character flaws. Give us some insight into how those interacted and played this very important part, unfortunately, in the family's lives. The great-grandparents, obviously, I don't know much about them at all. This book is basically fiction, other than I knew when they were born, when they died, when they had their children. My cousin that still lives in Newport, Wales, was able to get a lot of information for me. And so it's based, it's very loosely based on facts. And that's basically all the facts there are. The rest of it is imagination. The reason I wanted to write the book is when I was a little girl, and I can remember it was at the age of five, and my father's mother, my, my grandmother, would come over from England and she would stay with us. I used to question her. I just, I was fascinated. I always loved history and, and I used to ask her questions and sometimes she would talk to me about things and sometimes she wouldn't and her bedroom we had a split level home in ocean city new jersey and her bedroom was on the bottom floor and there were twin beds and sometimes she'd let me sleep in there and i'd get to hear all of her stories and and it was just fascinating and i loved it and i just couldn't wait to put my everyday life behind me and be able to sit down and really write But what's so strange about all of it is everything she told me was a lie. I mean, it's it's just amazing. And so when we get into book two, we'll we'll find out a lot about that. All the way down to our last name that my father had was not his real last name. And it's just fascinating. 
when I was, oh, I guess my, I must have been about 30, my grandmother passed away. And my dad was executor of her estate. And so he and my mother flew over to England and they got, they got to her house and it was a sea of black garbage bags. My cousin had flown over on the Concorde and all the paperwork was gone. Everything was gone. And so thinking we were going to find out everything that was true uh, didn't really happen. We've, I've had to dig. And again, I have a cousin that lives in, in Newport, Wales, who's gone to great lengths to help me. I mean, she's even gone to the hospital where my grandfather died and demanded all of his records, which we've got. I mean, it's just great. We, we've got those records of his illness and his death and she was able to get a lot of that but everything that my paternal grandmother told me that fascinated me was not true <laughs> so digging through that has been quite a revelation so this deep insecurities that you've talked about that run through especially the women in the family is is this all part of this? Is this all part of the history of that yeah. you are writing about that has caused this kind of pain in in the individuals? I, I think so. I think that that the women sought their. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the the best word for it, their validation. They sought their validation through career a career path. Their validation didn't come from themselves and didn't come from a man because the men in their lives it, there's so many twists and turns that and tragic things that happened and fate stepping in so basically there's many things that happened and i think a lot of things that happened have to do with having children being rejected and that's all part of it so it's it's a very intricate tangled web and the reader will work through it as they go through the whole trilogy I, just, I know that many people that have read book one Quicksand I've had excellent feedback on and I, I've been very very pleased with that they can't wait for book two and the reason book two isn't out yet is because I've had uh, things in my own personal life that have have held me back but it, it will be out within the next probably six months and that'll be about your grandmother and then book three about yes. your mother it'll be about my grandmother my sisters and myself and my father a lot about my father of course my mother and then when we get to the last book it's it'll bring it up to date to uh what's really happened to all of these family members and people with how did they get so scattered? Why do we have a global family? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very strange type of family unit, and it's, it's sad, very sad. Well, as you put it, you have come to understand turbulence, instability, and flaws that were deep-seated in the family lineage. And uh, great to get to know family, though, it, it, regardless of... Of what we discover, there's an important tie there that I think that's what makes family history genealogy such a, 
uh, I guess it's the number one hobby. You know, I think a lot of people have, have really gotten into their ancestry. There's a television show now that's uh, on that movie stars look at, you know, where they came from and they travel all over the world. And, and I think that really piqued a lot of people's interest. Myself, I've just always been interested. I've always loved history. I've loved my family history. And so it's, it's been a, I think, as you say, it's probably one of the number one pastimes, people looking into their ancestry, that there's a, a couple sites on the Internet that are just huge, and I think they're very lucrative for the, as a business. Right, yeah, I think you're talking about Ancestry.com is a... Ancestry.com is one of them, right, yes. Very, and very I mean, big. I've, gone, I've gone to it, and as a matter of fact, I think the most startling thing that I found, and I sat there and just stared at it like I was seeing ghosts flying around my head was the ship's manifest and I can see from the Mauritania and I can see my mother's name, my name my sister's name what we had with us what the dates were, it's it's fascinating Yeah, it's fascinating and riveting that's for sure see your name written there and you were basically a baby I was three I mean it's just unbelievable We've been talking with Victoria Thomas. She's the author of Quicksand, a family foundation, book one. Victoria, tell us, what's the best way to get your book? You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Google or, you know, Google it, and you can find wherever different places are that sell it. And uh, also through Author House. So there's several different methods of getting the book and I, I would like to say that I've enjoyed talking to you about the book and and I've loved writing it and I can't wait to get book two finished <laughs> and get that out there so people can continue on with the saga that's very I think intriguing do you have a title for book two you know I'm wrestling with it okay. uh, so I can't tell you I've got a definite a definite title yet Well, thank you so much, Victoria, for joining us on Author Talk. Steve, I want to thank you, and I hope you have a wonderful afternoon, and thank you for being interested in my book and sharing it with others. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. And greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. 
The book is titled Women Who Knew Jesus. And joining me from California, near the city of San Francisco, is author Dr. Bonnie Ring. Welcome to the program. Thank you. This is a, a book that uh, is y- unique in several uh, several uh, perspectives, I guess. Uh, one, it deals specifically with uh, the women of the New Testament and their relationship to Christ. Uh, how did you come up with the idea of wanting to write this book? Oh, it's a wonderful story. I was uh, in my first year of seminary at the age of 46, and uh, the instructor in church history said we needed to write five meditations about saints from the first 500 years of the church and I flippantly said is it all right if I choose all women Mm -hmm. and he answered me and said well sure though I can't think I I don't think I can think of five that would qualify That was fighting words. Well, I not only discovered those five, but I discovered there was a whole slew of women that Jesus interacted with, and they had a very different attitude toward him and a response to him than the male disciples did. Absolutely. You have uh, included in here the many well-known figures from the New Testament uh, interaction with Christ. And one thing I found interesting about your book and your style is that you have uh, sort of written this in a way that it could be done as a or read as a devotional guide. It could be used in a church setting, could be used in a community setting. What was it is being done? That is being done now. Wonderfully. There are churches all over that are reading the book together and responding to it, and it's it's it allows an individual to do it on their own. I have friends who say, "I'm re- this is one book. I'm really going to do the exercises. I I would resist it normally." Yes, at the end of each chapter, you have a sort of a meditation area and questions that will delve into the thinking of the reader and get them interacting with the content. I think that's a yeah, wonderful the meditations approach. Meditations allow them to think about how that woman would be feeling and how Jesus might be feeling. And then the questions ask them to apply the same circumstances to their lives now. I have noted in your biography that you also had some, uh, I will will call it, um, theatrical involvement in your church setting. Um, doing, uh, how would you describe those, those uh, activities? I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. Well, I may have misread then. I I, I had the impression that you had done some, uh, uh, not theatrical, but but uh, dramatic uh, interaction and in, in, uh, interpreting some of the stories. Well, uh, less less so in church and more in my retreats. Mm. I I got the the participants to act out the stories, and they became alive for them. And then when I was a student, I took a course, a wonderful course, course called. The Gospel of John as instant theater. Correct. And it was in, I think this is the instant that you're thinking of, and it was in the experience of playing the role of Mary Magdalene that I really got it, that it's so powerful to, to experience the person telling their story. And of course, that's the way the Gospel was originally formed. Well, thank you so much for the stories and reacted. Thank you so much for reinforcing the fact that I am not losing my uh, my intellect. <laughs> totally. Uh, the reason also that I brought that up in in thinking of the uh, the questions and the meditations at the end of your chapter, I was thinking that those uh, did you write those with the intent of perhaps those being portrayed and uh, reenacted? Uh, no, I. 
let's see, the, the, the questions first formed as I did retreats with women around the women who knew Jesus. And um, then I added to them as I was writing the book to make it more complete and to, to allow each woman to kind of engage herself in the, in the story. As I was reading it, and uh, of course, that again, I have a little bit of a creative background, it, it sort of took me into the theater, into a theatrical setting where I could maybe interact with other people and uh, retell that story maybe from my perspective using those as a guideline. That's just something well, that impressed that's me. That's what we did in the Gospel of John is Instant Theater. Yes. We took the story and we read it, recreated it as a script. And we acted it out, and then as a class, we talked about the impact that that story had on us, seeing it right in front of us. Phenomenal. 247 pages. How long did it take you to complete this, Dr. Ring? It took about a year and a half to write, and then another six months to edit. Hmm. Is there anything that you discovered in your research that is not commonly known in the Christian faith that maybe stood out to you a little bit? Probably the most striking thing is the impact these women had on Jesus. Um, Some of them changed his mind about things or opened up discussions that had never been held before. For instance, the Samaritan woman at the well Mm -hmm. was somebody who was really, she's on the cover of the book, she she avoided the people in town because they disparaged her and she was was considered kind of loose and and immoral. And... um, when she got talking to Jesus, at first she was very resistant. You know, men didn't talk to women they didn't know, and Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. But after she got engaged with him, she started to get excited about what he was saying, and she said to him, well, you know, you Jews think that you should only worship in the temple in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans have a different place that we worship. And Jesus said something he never said anywhere else. Where you worship worship will not matter. It is how you worship, whether you worship with an open heart, with all your being in, in response to God. Remarkable insight. Absolutely. Yeah. And also the fact that Jews and, and uh, Samaritans really did not I- interact at all. In fact, I'm sure the disciples no, long, were pretty alarmed. Long history of despising one another. Right. And Christ eliminated that barrier not only with the Samaritans, but also with uh, with the ladies or, or with women, because that, again, was probably a cultural uh, uh, no-no. Oh, yeah. no, no, no moral Jew would have approached women the way Jesus did. He, he just disregarded the custom, and he treated them as equals. What did you think the impact of these women you have uh, highlighted in your book had on the early church? Or did anything happen because well, of their... Well, I think, I think their impact on the early church was diminished as the early church became more concerned with its own acceptability. Many of these women were um, figures, many women were figures in the early church in, in running house churches and mm-hmm. celebrating the Eucharist. And then as the culture, um, as, as the desire for acceptability in the Roman culture got greater... They got more restrictive towards women, and um, and then the worst story of all is the story of Pope Gregory, who thought that Mary Magdalene was a, a prostitute, mm. and he he conflated several different stories about different women, none of whom were really prostitutes, but one of them was a repentant woman of something, 
and he put them all together, and he called her Mary Magdalene. And so in the Eastern Church, she has been referred to as the Apostle to the Apostles, because she was the first to see the risen Christ. But in the Western Church, it took them until Vatican II in the 60s to admit that their story about Mary Magdalene was wrong. Incredible. What, yeah. do you, what do you hope the reader will take away from this church? Do you, did you write this specifically for women to read, or is this something that I, will be, uh, you know, everyone is going to find uh, I, value? I have found men, men find it very interesting. I think women are excited by it because it offers them some models that are relevant today to, um, to be outspoken, to be um, committed to the things they value, to... Um, to treat Jesus as somebody that was important and who understood him in ways that the men did not. So she's a, they're all great role models, and we all need role models. Men and women need role models. Well, that's true. People that we, we, we you know, can aspire to be like. Which of the women that you highlighted do you feel is uh, maybe at the top of that, that list of, of people we should admire? Oh, that's hard. Um, well, my favorite has always been Mary Magdalene. Yes. Um, and I I think that um, the more I've gotten to know her, the more I've gotten to appreciate her. But I also think that I have uh, just my own feelings about these women has, has just deepened as a result of writing the book. And uh, the Samaritan woman, I would not have guessed that I would have put her on the cover three years ago. But I went through all the pictures I had of all the women with my spiritual director, and we both picked her hmm. because she she was a nobody. She was an un she was an unacceptable woman in her in her culture, and Jesus treated her like she was worth every every bit as much as anybody else. Doesn't and that? And she then turned around and got her people to come listen to him and convert. And that really is the underscored message of the gospel. Yes. The message is we can all bring other people to Jesus. You have uh, talked about the woman who had an issue of blood or hemorrhage and yes. her healing. Is there anything in history that goes beyond the scriptural account of that, or did, did you just highlight her faith in this, uh, in this account? No. I, actually, I begin by, by reading, uh, quoting from Leviticus what was, what was the rules in, in the Hebrew scriptural rules about how women were to behave when there was a flow of blood, whether it was menstruation or some other cause. And um, there was a purity code in Hebrew times that was especially applied to the women rather than the men. The men were, in fact, the purity code was impo- in, in, imposed to protect the purity of the men. Mm. And so um, her her experience is is not different from what Jewish women experienced all 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 that time. And the red the red tent, that wonderful novel, is a is a great description of. Hebrew times and the women's response to being isolated and and um, uh, set apart actually and set apart set yes. apart when they were bleeding yeah and, and and in her case the the story is impactful because she had suffered for twelve years hmm. and when she heard that there was this Jewish man who had cured a woman Peter's mother-in-law. 
she thought, if I can only just get close enough to touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And by God, that happened. It's a, it's a wonderful story of faith, for sure, yeah, on, many level, on many levels. You yeah. also talk about the woman that Jesus sees from the cross. Uh, who is that woman? Mm, well, that's a big debate. Was that his I'm mom? I'm going to get in trouble, <laughs> I think, with some people, because I, I do not believe the woman at the cross was Mary, his mother. Hmm. I believe that he and she conflicted over how he was spending his life and that she was not there. The only one that says she was there is John, and that was written about 50 years later than the other Gospels. Uh, I believe that the women who were there were those who had served Jesus, and the primary among them was Mary Magdalene. And even in the Gospel of John, when when John says, uh, his beloved disciple, I think she was the beloved disciple. That's an she interesting... She was the one that had the closest understanding and relationship with him of all the followers. Controversial for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leaves us on a very interesting note. I will say this, uh, ch- 22 chapters, 262 pages. Uh, whoever picks this up is going to get a, uh, a great deal of thoughtful discussion about the women who knew Jesus. Uh, I think that they will find the meditations uh, very engaging and dr- reflective examination of their knowledge of Jesus. And your next project? I'm working on an article about how this book helps us see Jesus more clearly and how Jesus is a model of a spiritual director to us, but the book is a spiritual director to us. Excellent. Well, thank you for yeah. sharing this story and, and happy to know that you are continuing your writing career. Well, again, you, the, the book again is titled Women Who Knew Jesus, and my author who has joined me from California is Bonnie Ring. Dr. Ring, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Well, they certainly can get it from my publisher, AuthorHouse, AuthorHouse.com, or they can get it from Amazon or any of the other online bookstores. Have you launched a website yet, or is that something in the future? Oh, there's a wonderful website that AuthorHouse has created for me. It's www.womenwhonewjesus.com. Wonderful. Uh, Again, for those who might want to do some uh, respectful uh, stalking online, your name is spelled B-O-N-N-I-E, last name R-I-N-G. Dr. Ring, yes. thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. My pleasure. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. In the 1950s, kids were about baseball, the Lone Ranger, and apple pie. In the 60s, it was war, finding your freedom in the monkeys. The 1970s brought disco, the Brady Bunch, and self-empowerment. When the 80s arrived, the youth of the world celebrated individuality in a rocking beat. The 90s whizzed by with lots of grunge and many shades of gray. Now, the turn of the century has come and gone, and today's youth has something to say. Young Mind Society is the voice of a new generation. Tune in on AstronetRadio.com Fridays at 6 p.m. Central to hear DJ Y, Carl Papa, Queen Meat, and Princess Jazz lay down the humor, ideas, and thoughts of the now. Remember, Young Mind Society, Fridays at 6 p.m. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled USFP, Initials, A New Beginning. My author, M.I. Clark, joins me to talk about her publication and her novel. Welcome. And her first name also is Mira, so I will refer to you as Mira in the interview. Welcome to the program. 
Thank you. Pleasure visiting with you. Your book has a mm, provocative-looking photo on the cover. Share with my listeners the style of writing that you have uh, undertaken here in this novel. Well, it's sort of a cross between police stories and police-type story and science fiction. And it does uh, does does it take place? It does take place in the in the uh, current uh, time frame. Although it does deal with science fiction and uh, some of those some of those elements. Yes, the book begins in uh, March two thousand three. Two thousand three, and your main character is is uh, called Matrix. If I understand the the outline of your book, the main character is that male, female. How would you describe that to my listeners? And it talks about a sixty year uh, time frame or window before Matrix comes back on the scene. Share a little of that background story. Well, it, she was a. Uh, uh, Let's see, I'm looking at my board. She was uh, abducted from Exeter, England, April 25th, 1942, during the uh, certain battle that happened there from Germany. And uh, she was returned in September 2002. Uh, Was she shocked or alarmed by what she encountered with that absence? That is not in this book. There's more... To it, a lot more to it than that, and more, a great deal more than sixty years actually passed. But mm. since she's returned sixty years later, it only says sixty years. And who more of that will come out in other books. You are planning a, a sequel to this, and in fact, as I begin speaking with you this morning, you are actually undertaking that process as we speak. What is the the uh, uh, the attraction to this type of story? When did you decide you wanted to? put something into print. What's your creative background? Well, as a kid, I always wrote stories and poems and stuff. My dad always encouraged me. And then when I got married, my mother-in-law, she would proofread all my stories, but I never had any of them printed. And uh, she encouraged me to have something printed. Well, then I, in 2005, I started this series. And over a six-week period, I wrote eight or ten stories some entirety, some just ideas. And six or seven of them deal with this particular series. You have you have mentioned that you have a board or, I guess, an outline um, s- sketch of some type that you have worked from. Was this one that was fleshed out before you began putting the, the, the details to your character, or was it one that just was created through inspiration? The board is what, as I go along, I add things to it or take things from it so I can keep things in order. For example, her eye, her, this particular character's eyes change color with her emotions. Hmm. That's revealed in a book. Interesting. And you've managed to pen uh, 275 pages. Describe for me the the individual that's going to pick this book up and really gravitate toward this style of writing. I think anyone who likes pretty shows, uh, CSI's, um, there's another series I watched, Lieutenant Homicide, uh, Homicide Hunter, um, things along this line. Um, anyone that likes anything to do with the police, I like top shows. I'm an ex-cop. Ah, you have set this in Dallas-Fort Worth, a very high-profile city in the United States. Why did you choose DFW? As it's called in the in the in the region. 
I really don't know. It just sounded like a really neat area. I've been through the airport once, uh, changing flights, but that's as far as I've ever gotten. My brother lived down in Texas. Um, my family did it one time, but I was too little to remember. <laughs> so. It just intrigued you. You you uh, have have described this as uh, kind of a cross between science fiction, a cop uh, uh, book, if you want to call it that. Is there an action element to this, or was it all mystery? There is a lot of action. In this chapter two, is a lot of action. Other chapters have. Uh, chapter two starts off the story with the uh, arriving at the airport. It, it gives a little background in chapter one and two. She meets the guy that has the head in the box. Turns out it's a child's head, and then there's clues that lead her to where the body is and other things. And. Um, other children mm. and you do have a child on the front and is and is that your main character or is that just a depiction of just, other people that's just one of the children in the book i described her my artist drew her and it just came out that way i like the cover it, he did and it is excellent. It looks like a photograph almost. I mean, it's wonderfully done, and, and very. Uh, it draws you in. You wonder what is happening to the characters in this book. You also have mentioned the term alien in the book. This is uh, having to do with ESE, I was going to say ESPN, with extraterrestrials, correct? Yes. I was just going to ask if that's the main thrust of your of your storyline, the the um, alien aspect of the of the book, or is it the murder side? The murder side in book one, as other books, it gives more, more and more details of her, of the alien abduction, what they did to her, why they did what, possibly why they did what they did to her, and how long she was really fr- taken from Earth, and her true age will come out in other books. The yeah. book with the plane crash is the most exciting book of all, so far. Ah, and what do you hope to achieve? Most authors, of course, want to express themselves creatively, but is there something beyond that? Do you think that maybe there's enough storyline here that a, a a movie company may pick it up and adapt it for the screen? Yes, I do, because I've never heard or seen of anything with this cross in it before. I mean, there's been series where there's police officers out in, this, in the future, and then you got the series where pu- police officers are in the present, but you don't have one that covers both at the same time. Is there a, a an aspect of the story, I, I see the word pedophilia that is also dropped in reference to your book. Is that also part of the sub-theme of what you have, uh, have talked about? In book one, um, the actual suspect is a pedophile and his son. Hmm. That's intriguing. There's more to it than that that will come out in uh, future books. There's things in book one that point to future books. There's also red herrings. You've done a great job of making it a mystery then. Uh, The title, USFP, what does that stand for? United States Federal Police. They can go anywhere in the world. This is uh, an entity that really does not exist except in your imagination, though, correct? And this idea of uh, making an international or uh, non-confined police force, (laughs) is this uh, something that came out of your work as uh, a law enforcement officer? No. Just something you wanted to to see created in the fictional sense? 
fictional. I would not want it done in reality. Thank you. It's too horrifying <laughs> to think about. Thank you for saying that. I, I was a little bit nervous when you when you mentioned that. What do you think is the underlying uh, moral to the story? Is there one, or is it just a, a quick read and uh, a fast story for someone to enjoy? Well, I chose pedophiles as the first one because, pe- first of all, people don't want to believe they exist, or that their neighbor, their cousin, their brother, their son, or whatever could be one. But in 2005, I looked up the FBI uh, list on how many children are victims before they're caught. And that's 84. And a lot of those go on to victimize other children. I believe it. it, I felt it was a subject that had to be out there. Yeah, we personally, my my family personally, uh, was acquainted with someone who was a neighbor that was actively molesting small children we didn't realize it at the time and it uh, came out later in life so those things do happen they don't get uh, reported many times right a lot of time the pressure the, the family pressures the children not to come forward because it is a relative they don't want to have a stigma placed to their family what is your what is your hope you say you have a another book in the works if I could describe your short-term goals, what would those be? Would that be the completion of the second book, or is there other things also on the work uh, in the works? Well, I'm working on five or six books all at once. I get stuck in one, I'll jump to, back to one of the others, then I'll jump back when I when that way I'm never not writing. Excellent idea, having a board with the uh, definitions and the uh, different storylines uh, i would be very confused if i didn't have something like that so you have obviously become very organized in in doing your writing how long does it take to complete a book of 279 pages well i started mine in 2005 i sent it for print the first time in 2012 but there was an error between me and the company i used and um i stopped it and then i had to redo it fix their errors and then i changed the book a little bit and then uh I resubmitted it, and it's. I saw on Amazon last night it was up for sale. Excellent. Now, your next book, how long do you think it'll be before that is released? Probably later this year. I'm thinking between September and November. Phenomenal. I'll be doing, I'll be doing book signings here in Michigan and then in uh, Florida at the end of the year. Excellent. Just go down there for three months of the year. Congratulations on this, your first release. USFP, those are initials, subtitled A New Beginning. My author, M. I. Clark. Mira, thank you for joining me today, and where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Uh, author House has them. Listeners, you can also do a search under the name of the author, M. I. Clark, C-L-A-R-K. And those first two parts, M and I, are initials. They will not only be able to locate this release, but also any books in the future. Correct. Mira, thank you for joining me today. Best of luck on this release and any project that you release in the future. And, Mira, what is the age range or the age that you would say this book, this title, is appropriate for? I'm thinking 16, just because of the pedophile aspect. Might, might be a little scary. 12, 13, may have to ask their parent, what does that word mean? Right. And because I don't go into the story what's actually done to the children because I didn't think that was appropriate. That's why I say 16. Thank you, Mira, for clearing that up, and thank you for joining me today.
for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker.